and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show as we have invited on a wonderful writer, thinker, teacher, Glenn Aparicio Parry, who is the author of Original Thinking, A Radical Revisioning of Time, Humanity, and Nature. Those of you who listen to A Better World with any regularity know that we look to discuss these types of subjects and the nature of thinking and our interpretation of reality, the way our belief systems are influencing our thinking all of the time, and what we can do to revision, to expand, and take more of each other, our brothers and sisters, basically, into consideration and beyond all sentient life and even the larger cosmology in which we actually find ourselves when we look north and look up. So a word about our guest today, Glenn Parry. Glenn is a writer, educational consultant, international speaker, entrepreneur, and visionary whose lifelong passion has been to help reform thinking and education into a coherent and cohesive whole. He is the founder and past president of the SEED Institute. Uh, Glenn is currently the president of the think tank, the Circle for Original Thinking. He earned his BA in psychology from Allegheny College and then went on to earn both his master's and in psychology and PhD in humanities with a concentration in transformative learning from the California Institute of Integral Studies. Glenn organized and participated in the groundbreaking Language of Spirit conferences from 1999 through to 2011 that brought together Native and Western scientists in dialogue moderated by Leroy Little Bear. He has also appeared in a few different documentaries, including Journey to Turtle Island. So it's with uh, great pleasure and honor to have Glenn on with me today. I also want to just uh, thank James O.D., who has been on these airwaves several times, uh, for recommending that I have Glenn on the show to talk about his original work in original thinking. So thank you, James. <laughs> and Glenn, thanks for being on the show with me today. I, I love the thought of being able to spend some time unpacking this beautiful work that you've been doing. Oh, thank Welcome. you very much, uh, sure. Mitchell. It's a blessing, great blessing to be on good, the show. Good, good, good. Oh, and it's, just uh, as I just as I said yeah. that, a, a Cooper Hawk appeared in front of me outside the window. Oh, wow. this looks like an omen in your incentive. Yeah, it's a good correct? omen. It's always good. Always good. Always good. That's wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that, Glenn. It's interesting that as we, in the world that we inhabit, of original and indigenous and creative thinking, there are no mistakes. Everything happens in its own way and its own reason. So with that said, yes. I, I welcome such omens. Would you please start with uh, laying out the premise of your thinking here in this wonderful book that I've really been enjoying, Original Thinking? Oh, well, thank you very much. Well, one of the first things I... I 
wanted to revision was time. So we're going to go back to that omen in a minute because, you know, the concept of linear time has this idea that an event happens and it's irreversible and then you move from one event to another event on this kind of line. <laughs> um, and uh, yes. um, a different way of thinking about things, um, which was introduced to me by Tobasaniquit Canoe and others, but what Tobasaniquit himself said was just this question. He said, he asked, what kinds of things want to happen together? So that goes to the omens. You know, um, um, certain mm-hmm. things, if you, if you start looking for what kinds of things want to happen together, then everything that does happen becomes more meaningful. And uh, um, and it's a, a very, very different way of looking at the world. All of this came about because of a question that Leroy Little Bear asked in a dialogue circle in 1999 that uh, that I had convened between these Native American elders and Western scientists. He just asked the simple question, is it possible to come up with an original thought? Um, and mm-hmm. that's when that's when the Western people in the room, with the exception of one or two, tried to think of something brand new that had never been done before or said before. So in other words, they're thinking of time as a line. Um, and original okay. is something new that's never happened before. Um, as where a the, novel. Where the, mm-hmm. Yeah, novel, exactly. Um, and the indigenous people took the question completely differently, going to the heart of the word, going to origin as place, and they yeah. look for original instructions for how to live on the planet, and they saw origin as a place of regeneration, a place of healing. Very, very different approaches. Um, and, uh, and 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 really, a That's lot of the so work. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I just want to say one more thing. It's just that a lot of the work unfolds Ooh. from there. You know, so mm-hmm. we're looking at. Uh, how the Western world came to see time as a line. Exactly. And, and that's what so I try to... So there's a past, there's a present, and there's a future along some kind of linear time that we can keep track of, and we have this thing called history, which, of course, when we break that down, we get his story, and we know no. how his story is so not only subjective, but biased, and oftentimes the victors are those who actually write the story. Well, you're a, you're, you're a very uh, a beautiful thinker. I love what you're doing. And I want to politely um, say to you that actually his, history doesn't come from his story. <laughs> so it Please, comes from his correct sto- me. It comes from historia, which is a Greek word, you know, meaning um, an oh. in-depth, an in-depth examination of a particular. It, the word is still used in its original meaning for, let's say, a therapist wants to take a history of the person. It's not a history yeah. as like what happened on this date or not. It really doesn't come from his story, although it's a good assumption to make since we live in the patriarchal time. <laughs> Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, you can't say that it, it, even though that might not be the etymology, obviously, it's not Greek as such, but yeah. it still has its own, at least superficial meaning as such. But what you're saying is uh. historia is its root, and that meaning is like more like a personal biography? Is that weird? Yeah, an, in, an in-depth examination, an immersion, an immersion 
down into oh, the story, okay. actually, into the story. And that's that's a very, very different way of thinking yeah. than when we're trying to, again, it's almost like we, see, we've accepted this idea that history is about events. That's how we learned it in school. It was on this timeline. Yes. Yeah. You know, and... And the timeline wasn't even invented until 250 years ago. We never even needed it before, because we just mm. went into we just went into deep stories about it. Um, so isn't that interesting? <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. No question yeah. about it. I I can't help but also just comment, maybe playfully, Glenn, that the word yeah. hysteria then in Greek is not that far away from the word hysteria. And I don't know if there's um, any other relationship. <laughs> you can't help very, but Very interesting, which is, which, is, which is very feminine. Um, and, uh, exactly. And, uh, and, and, uh, yes, of from course. From which we get yeah. hysterectomy, of course. Right. And we get hysterectomy. Exactly. Yes, we do. Yes. And yes. I love the origin of words point. because it uncovers the archaeology of the mind. So please forgive me for saying. <laughs> oh, well, for nothing. Yeah. There's nothing to forgive. I so appreciate. For, I mean, this is yeah. this is how I learn, my friend. You know. So yeah, okay. God knows. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Truly, truly. Um, and uh, so, unpacking that story, if you will, about linear time, and so. When we get into original thinking, i.e., let's say we use the word indigenous, so that is, again, rooted to place. And from that point of view, everyone is indigenous because everyone comes from a certain area or region of land that is sort of their stake in it. Uh, When we use the word indigenous these days, we're usually referring to people who have a longer standing relationship to the land of their birth and those of their yeah. uh prior generations and ancestors. So that bring that to bear on this conversation if you would. Well, there's another interesting word indigenous, you know, the 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 actual root of that word is from the Greek and Dino and it it's really Related to the guts or entrails of the earth. I mean, it's a very emo- oh. so if you're indigenous, if you're indigenous, you are so connected to the earth that you, to to, yes. to to tear yourself away from it is going to really rip your guts out. Oh, so it's kind oh of that. God. That's the feeling. Yes, I of hear it. you. Uh-huh. You know, that's the feeling of it. But of course, the word has so many other definitions, political definitions from the United Nations about yes, legalistic. Yeah, legalistic, and 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 in, in, and a person can say, hey, you know, I'm a native New Yorker or something, or I'm a, you know, I mean, and that that yes, has validity. Right. But so I would say this, I would just say, try to verb it. You know, it's really about indigenizing. You know, it's about remembering yes. how to connect with the land. That allows everybody to do it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, one of the things I found so interesting is uh, this point that you bring up, first of all, we know that there are languages, especially, how do I put it, Native American languages that are more process and verb oriented, since you mentioned that, Glenn, unlike uh, a more nominally based linguistics like English, where things are uh, particleized and we're looking more at nouns. Um, And that actually extends to the idea of looking at time as a series of events as opposed to distinct from 
a process that is ongoing, like you were saying, going deep into story where time actually feels like it ceases to exist. Very interesting. So there's this relationship between the way we tell stories and the way we engage stories, the language we're using to tell the story, and our relationship to time. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's very very true. So that you know that's going back to where we started. The story of the stories, the getting immersion, the uh, the way to, the way we see the world is not as obvious as it appears to be. I mean, one thing that I like to talk about is dreams because I think the way we see the world in our dreams is a vestige um, or a remembering or perhaps just a rebalancing of the odd way we're seeing the world in our waking life because we, mm-hmm. we, we you know the the quick story i mean you know that i like to go to that happened exactly 600 years ago is the and i go into it in the book is what happened when we invented linear perspective in art you know because it was mm-hmm. just this cat i didn't say this in the book but you know it was just bruna shelley or Brunelleschi, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, frankly, um, mm-hmm. in 1415, exactly 600 years ago, he pokes a hole in the painting, he puts a mirror behind it, and he created a 3D illusion on a 2D canvas. And uh, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have changed the world except this other cat, Alberti, comes by 20 years later. He systematizes it, he puts it in a book, he shows people how to do perspective, you know, creating the vanishing point and whatnot, and it became viral as much as anything could at that time. You know, it was translated (laughs) in six, seven languages and spread through Europe, and then it became realism. It became known as realism, the real way we see the world. But is it real, Mitchell? I don't think so. Right. It's a very good question, Glenn. What George O'Keefe said is the least real thing is realism. And I agree with her because we have two moving and watery eyes. And what what linear perspective does is gives you a view from one stationary eye out in lines. And it created this I, this emphasis on the on uh, separation between humans and nature. That's what we're always talking about today. But yeah. the root cause of it, or at least the the most immediate root cause of it, is this creation of perspective and the idea that that was more real than being immersed in the world. So you see what I'm saying? When we're yeah. dreaming, we're immersed in the world, and I don't yeah. think that's less real. That's you know every everything in a dream image is alive. Everything is numinous. Everything is vibrating, and for some people, that's the way they see it when they're awake. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. That's right. It's it, it, you're you're hovering in this very interesting uh, space relating to consciousness here, Glenn, which is yeah. what's real and how do we know it? What are our tests? for reality, if you will, and um, is the dreaming state less real than that world of sensory awareness that we identify as real? So it begs the question, could we engage our imagination and really be as real? 
And it's so funny because if you uh, really inquire into dreams, we see that it was dreams that gave rise to those things that we call most real, like the structure of the atom, (laughs) right? Niels Bohr. We see that there's this, uh, this interdimensional state where people dream up a future. Let's just put ourselves on the linear timeline again for a moment. You know, like a merry-go-round. Well, wait a minute. That's mm-hmm. not exact. But you know what I mean. And, yeah. um, and yeah. we could see that when we go into this uh, more of a quasi-dimensional state of alpha or a theta state, which is more of a contemplative and meditative state, we can start to get clearer about the things that are important to us and start to envision a kind of life, a kind of being that we really want to manifest. And it might, neuroscience seems to show us that our dream state actually starts to materialize after all. So how do you go figure that one out? Well, you you brought up a a lot of things there. You know, it's, <laughs> go for it. it it's go a, for it. You know, here, here's what here's the way I tend to think of things. You know, our consciousness is really formed from nature. You know, our thoughts are like water. So you know, and this is why we use these metaphors. I don't know for some reason we're heavy into the weeds of language, <laughs> but that's yeah. important. You know, I mean, they're, I love they're, it. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's why we talk about um, mainstream consciousness, a stream of consciousness, mainstream thought, underground thought, thought that thought itself looks like a cloud, um, and mm-hmm. when it's not just. It's not just a fictional depiction. If clairvoyants say thought is like a cloud, we, yeah. uh, you know, th- stale thought evaporates. It kind of hobnobs with other clouds, and then we get a brainstorm. You know, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason why Native Americans yeah. traditionally knew how to control the weather because mm-hmm. their consciousness was interconnected with the weather, and they knew that. That's the same reason why indigenous peoples, when there was a tsunami approaching in Indonesia, went to the ocean's edge and spoke to the storm. It can be done. (laughs) You know, so here's the thing. I think everybody is receiving their consciousness from nature. It's just that we have different filters. Uh, One of the filters is language, you know, like you brought up Mm -hmm. before. The the Western language, and it goes back to linear perspective and stuff, isolates things. And so we have an abundance of nouns. Indigenous Mm -hmm. language doesn't do that. It's more immersive. It's not about linear perspective. When you see art by indigenous people, they don't generally use perspective, even though they can. <laughs> you know, and sometimes mm-hmm. they use both. Um, so, um, an immersive consciousness is more verby. It's moving. It's moving, and that—that's closer to reality, I would say, um, because yeah. that, you know that is the way it is. And so, you know, the reason why those dialogues ever started, the reason why Leroy Little Bear approached David Bohm. These dialogues that I later inherited and convened didn't begin with me. Mm-hmm. They began with Leroy approaching David Bohm because he really appreciated what David Bohm as a visionary physicist was doing. Bohm looked inside the atom and he realized there were no longer any things. There, actually, that's something Alfred North Whitehead said. But 
But Bohm agreed, and Bohm tried to create a language or a mode of language, which he called the Rio mode, R-H-E-O, after the, using the Greek word to flow. And mm-hmm. he wanted, it basically was making English into a verbi, like kind of adding I-N-G onto everything. And he did yes, that because right. he realized like a that... Gerundive. Yeah. Yeah, gerundive. <laughs> yeah, we'll just call you. Uh, uh, you're you're Mitch Mitchelling, and I'll be Glenning. You know, from now on. Exactly. So, you know, right. It's like Bucky Fuller talks about. I am not a noun. I'm a verb. You know, we're that's we are right. verbs. I seem to be a verb. I seem. To yeah, be a verb. yeah. That's. I think right. it's a pretty cool way of thinking of the world. So, so what I'm. Definitely. So what we're talking about here is something very real because we now know even in you know in in since quantum theory that everything is moving everything is is not what it appears to be or like the you know that group the ICEM the International Association for yes, the Study of Subtle, Subtle Energy and Energy Medicine in I think they should yeah. have a motto things are not as they I seem to be but, <laughs> but never cute. mind that's cute <laughs> right, right, right. Never mind. Also true. <laughs> you know, you're reminding me of the yes. ancient Chinese sage statement uh, that I actually quote all the time and use in my practice and everything else is um, the only constant in life is change itself. And that happens yeah. to be a reality that we actually dig our heels in because we on some egoic level, don't like change as much as we may talk about wanting and needing change, yet everything is constantly changing and nothing ever remains the same but ever. And it's just one of those ironies and paradoxes of life that we're always facing. So I very much appreciate what you're saying and about the thoughts coming from nature and even having the elemental qualities of nature and why in the world should we be surprised by that we should be just you know with some equanimity about it as just the way it is well that's it's so important i think i think the world would shift for the better immensely if we simply remembered that the elements are alive that they create our consciousness and we rebuild a relationship with the elements we treat water lovingly we treat water as our mother we treat water as the source of all life we treat the air in the same way we breathe it in because look we couldn't be alive if the air you know if what we breathed in was dead out there how did we go to this strange place where we began to believe that the air is is dead you know or we used to believe in the pneuma the ruach the you know the yes, the, the, the prana we, we understood that yeah i yes, mean it's just a, exactly. we just forgot exactly and that's a good way of putting it and so your book and your work and your ongoing dialogues glenn are helping yeah. The planet, oh, well, thank you. it's, it's human inhabitants, wake up to and remember, as in putting mm-hmm. the pizza inside. I oftentimes use the phrase, putting Humpty Dumpty back together again, making, making Humpty Dumpty whole again from being the cracked, fragmented being that he became through the, yeah. uh, you know, the story, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah, you know. It's interesting. You know, we... we we were talking last uh, night briefly, you know, just uh, and yeah. and you brought up something, you know, you you've done a lot of work with uh, Gurdjieff, 
And that yeah, uh, yeah. I, it it only occurred to me that uh, that uh, the work that I'm speaking of is very congruent with that kind of work. It's about remembering yeah. and and That's and right. uh, who we are. We already are whole. We just have forgotten. That's right. <laughs> It's really true. It's really true. And you have had this wonderful uh, background with Little Bear, and you became imbued with Turtle Island Native American thinking. And would you share with us a little bit about uh, this interface between quantum physics and Native American language and uh, cosmological understanding. I mean, one of the things that people like you and I love about quantum physics is that it has uh, scientifically corroborated which what our guts and intuition have been telling us about the nature of reality all along. Everything is process. There's a wave of coal more than a particle. Spaces, I mean, um, a, a thing is primarily empty, uh, you know, a la David Bohm. And we, we, we know this somehow deeply, and Zen tells us, and all of the ancient wisdom teachings have been reiterating this, and the Western man in his linear left hemispheric mode sort of goes, what? How could it be? But yet, their mathematics formed, of course, down during Einstein's time, um, shows us that this is, in fact, real. And I'd yeah. love to hear from you a bit about um, that thinking as it is experienced by and spoken of by the Native elders that you've been uh, connected with. That's beautiful. Okay, I would be happy to do that, but I would like to, if with your permission, you know, maybe do it in the context of stories, you know, because sure. I could talk about my experience in Native America, but I think it might be more useful for oh, your listeners yeah. to hear more of That's a story. That's one of the beauties of your it, you book, know? by the way. Yeah. What's, at the beginning of your book, you engage story. You engage us in stories at the beginning of your book. That is very heartwarming. I'll just tell you. Well, well, thank you. You know, I mean, and that yeah. I, I'm not sure which one you're referring to, but you might be referring to the one about uh, Dan Moonhawk Alford. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, well, I can tell that one too. That's his story. I'll tell. Uh, <laughs> we got back to that somehow. Please, uh, please, but, please. But, we're sitting around the campfire with you. Please. Tell us. <laughs> but, but, let me, but before you do but, so, let me just okay. let everyone okay. know you are listening to a better world with Mitchell J. Rabin. We're on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you do not yet get our newsletter, please go to triple w dot abetterworld.tv become part of a better world's family and community we're spending today's show with Glenn Aparicio Perry who is the author of Original Thinking a Radical Revisioning of Time, Humanity and Nature who is about to tell us some stories oh beautiful beautiful thank you well you know the first story I want to tell is, is an important story because my mentor into Native America was Dan Moonhawk Alford. I was blessed to take a class from him in 1983. Um, on It was called Anthropological Linguistics, but that title didn't even begin to capture it. Moonhawk liked to describe himself as standing at the lonely intersection of quantum physics 
Native America consciousness um, and language. And indeed, that was a lonely intersection. Not that many people understood the confluence of that those ideas, but that's what the class was about. Um, and he, mm. he told us to you know, to take a diary because he knew the class would change her life and it did. So here's how Moonhawk, Moonhawk liked to tell the story about how when he was nine years old, his father invited him to come to his workplace. And his father was working as a longshoresman up in the northern California in the redwood forest near the ocean. Um, and so they spent the morning on a jitney and they were stacking up logs and that was great fun for a nine-year-old, right? But sure. then lunchtime came, and they took their lunch, you know, dangling their legs over looking at the Pacific Ocean. And, and Moonhawk had never seen the ocean before. And so he says to his father, Dad, that sure is a lot of water out there. His father looks it over and says, Yep, and that's just the top of it. <laughs> and Moonhawk liked to tell tell that story to illustrate his feeling of the depth of Native American wisdom and how to remind himself. And when I met Moonhawk, he already had 20, 25 years of friendships in Native America, but he wanted to remind himself about how deep that wisdom is. So then mm. let me tell you beautiful another story from my own experience. Um when I was first invited um, to the Canyoncito Band of Navajo, uh, their sacred grounds. Um, and this was uh, uh, shortly after I began seed, and Grandfather Leon Secretary already was one of the most beautiful persons I'd ever met. I mean, uh, the first years I, I met him, I didn't even hear the words he was saying because I was sort of in a trance, and yet he was speaking mm. from heart to heart. He, he mm -hmm. communicated um, vibrationally, um, and uh, he did that in Navajo, and he did that in English as well. Um, so he invited me to these sacred grounds, and the, and the, and the, the, the reservation of the Canyoncito Band of Navajo is only 30 miles west of Albuquerque, but to get there... There really isn't a passable road to the north where their where their ancestral grounds are. So we had to go south five miles, then we had to go east uh, 25 miles, and then we had to go north 35 miles. Then we had to go west 50 miles. Then we had to come back south across all dirt roads and unbelievably difficult dirt roads, um, mm -hmm. going down into deep, gullies, which we would call dimensions hills, and resurfacing somehow, if you, you know, and then it takes like five hours to get there. So just getting there was beautiful. And then when we mm. arrived, when we arrived, one of the first things I saw is this, this area where we set up camp actually was surrounded by eight buttes. One of them, if people know New Mexico, is Cabezon, um, but there's seven other buttes which kind of unveiled themselves slowly and then just appeared as we came into this site, and that's why it's sacred. Those are the original warriors. Now, there were also young men who were acting as warriors overlooking the, overlooking the camp, um, but anyway, that first day we, we we said prayers, we sung songs, and we told stories late into the night, and we and and we tended the ceremonial fire. 
Now, I really didn't understand the concept, but for some reason, people asked me in my very first year to tend the ceremonial fire, and that was when I learned how to do that. That's when I learned that. Oh, yeah. It was very different than what my father taught me. My father was a beautiful man, and he's a, his mother's Basque. He has some very ancient wisdom knowledge, but but he was mm-hmm. also an engineer, and he taught me about, you know, you position the wood this way, and I, I tended to think of it kind of technically like that at that time. Yeah. But then I learned, you know, you have to build a relationship with the fire. The fire is living, so you feed the fire sage, you feed the fire tobacco, you feed the fire, if it's hungry, a little food, maybe if it's sleepy, a little coffee. You know, we build a relationship mm-hmm. with the fire. And then I went to sleep. Um, this is this was my first mistake. Everybody went back to their tents to go to sleep, so I did too, even though I was the last person tending the ceremonial fire. And I can't say exactly what time it was because I didn't have a watch. You know, I don't ever wear a watch, actually, but I didn't have any timepiece of any uh-huh. kind. Um, but in the middle of the night, before Venus came up, you know, um, I heard Grandfather Leon's soft, mellifluous voice speaking in my ear. Mm. And he just said, Glenn, get up and tend the fire. Uh-huh. And But he wasn't there. It was just his voice. Uh-huh. Um, but So... It was very cold out there. You know, it happens, uh, the ceremonies happen in October. It's it's their New Year's ceremony. It was very cold. I actually was uh, dressed fully. I had all my clothes on, sleeping under the sleeping bag. And all I had to do was put on my shoes and get up. But then, as soon as I got up, I fell down because I was literally floored by the stars. It's the reason I moved to New Mexico. The stars are so beautiful and so bright. And I, and because the stars are so beautiful and so bright, I, I never feel a need for a flashlight. So I, I can see the fire off in the distance. There are coyotes howling in the background and really close by. And I, But I gather myself and I walk to the fire. And sure enough, Mitchell, when I got to the fire, it was almost dying. So I needed to rebuild that fire. Mm. And so I did. I rebuilt it in a roaring blaze, and then perhaps I made my second mistake. I went back to sleep again. <laughs> and then oh, and I had, been, I had been misinformed. Somebody played a prank on me. They told me that Leon's son, his eldest son, Orlando, who's a beautiful Native American flute player, was going to awaken us by playing flute. That didn't happen. There was uh, the human coyote in the camp. I won't say his name, for, you know, but uh, mm-hmm. but he he's yelling, uh, prepare yourself. Hey, coffee, coffee, you're burning daylight, you know, and he wakes us up two and a half hours about before sunrise. Um, mm. And and then um, I, I think uh, uh, Venus was still not up or just about up. All right, so... So then we go, and the most beautiful thing happens, which is that we, the medicine men sing songs to awaken, I mean, sing songs to invite the sun to come up. And they do, and, uh, you know, Ho Jonas, Leo Jonas, Leo Jonas, you know, they, they're singing and, and, and for the two and a half hours, and when that sun comes up, that's when I have a realization, really for the first time, I would say, that that sun that's coming up in the sky is the same sun as that central fire, is the same sun as my solar plexus, is the same sun as all the lights in the sky. I understood how consciousness is light. 
I understood that fire in the belly, literally. Um, mm. And I felt it, you know. And, and that was beautiful, but, but that's not the point of the story. Then, then I saw something remarkable, which is that Grandfather Leon is coming back into camp. And he wasn't... Uh, what happened was he got a message. It wasn't a cell phone message or a text message, because we don't have those things out there. But he got a message that people were lost, and then he had the power to know where they were lost and go find them, which is what he did mm. and what he was doing even when I got the his voice in my ear. He was not there in the camp then. He had gone to get those people. So I started to wonder, you know, how did he do that? How did he know to speak into my ear, you know? How did he bilocate? I assumed he must have bilocated his consciousness, and he had, and he had uh, been able to observe the fire dimming and to speak into my ear to awaken me to go feed the fire again, right? So I, that's what I was kind of my premise, but I, I wasn't sure. So that day when we were going out to do our ceremonies and say our prayers and make offerings and sacred sites, I you know saddled up to Leon and I and I asked him, Leon. How did you speak in my ear last night? But he didn't he didn't answer. Like a lot of native elders don't answer when you're asking yeah. the wrong question. And, uh, and he just <laughs> but in a way he did answer, Mitchell, because he, he his not answering you know, was saying to me, Glenn, be present, don't try to figure it out, be here, this right. is beautiful, Definitely. you're here to pray, you're not here to you know, to be a scientist. Um, right, and right. Um, at the same time, it, or, or, or actually several days later, I heard from Orlando Secretary, remember the, the eldest son who plays flute? Well, he's also trained in the medicine ways, and he said to me, Glenn, that wasn't Leon who spoke into your ear in the middle of the night. That was the fire speaking to, into your ear, disguising its voice as Leon, so you would listen. Oh, God. And that's what I mean by the origin of our consciousness is in nature. That was my experience. That was a profound experience for me and alerted me to Completely. start looking for the source of my consciousness in that way in the future, and I really have been ever since. And that's really, mm. that's the way, you know, Native America has fed me. You know, but... Oh, God. It, yeah. It's uh, a way of knowing. It's a, a broad, <laughs> truly holistic embrace of the larger multidimensional aspects of reality and yeah. our in comparison it appears Glenn that our culture and what's passed on generation to generation is the narrowest band of potential that really exists in the larger universe and Embedded even in Western culture, of course, are the gems of reality. Actually, they're everywhere, but mm -hmm. based on, I would put it, a mercantile culture, uh, a customized economic model that has put money and power as the virtually singular 
uh, values of our society. Uh, we have lost track of that wisdom that is otherwise very, it's actually abundant and embedded at the same time and shares a lot with Native American wisdom and even the upsurge and the create and um, realization, if you will, of quantum physics is an expression yeah. of that. Yeah, but let's talk sort of, about let's let's talk about yeah. this a little bit, Mitchell. This is really important, sure. you know, and I I don't want to go too quickly to to to, to thinking myself that that uh, our salvation is going to come only from indigenous peoples. We need to look deep into our own culture um and realize that we thought the same way before too um i mean to me um let's look at at at, at like uh plato and socrates they understood that the natures were where wisdom was they also yeah. like gurjeev like you know uh, understood that mm-hmm. what what was important was to remember uh what what was already is already there in nature. Yeah. They didn't almost they like didn't, already written, already written. Well, it's not necessarily written, but it's already there and and uh, written in and, nature. I don't mean as you know, written in nature. I mean, sure, 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 yes, sure. Yes. Um and and uh, you know, uh uh I also like, you know, I I looked in the book at the at the some similarities between Socrates and Descartes because yeah. um because so- both Socrates and Descartes, you know, had this radical doubt, you know. But I think mm-hmm. the difference is, and the and the writing on the wall was created when when De- when when Descartes, who had the same radical doubt as Socrates, also was searching for some kind of reliable way to know how you know something, um, yeah. and. And and so was you know what Socrates was doing <laughs> was searching for wisdom and not trying to hold on or accumulate knowledge. The holding on and accumulation of knowledge, in my view, is actually counter to what I would call original thinking. You know, original mm-hmm. thinking is really a direct revelation, a, di- a nature revealing herself to us. You know, when we stopped believing in that. That's when we got to the place where, you know, Francis Bacon was bemoaning, you know, let's put nature on the rack and torture her to get her secrets, you know. Mm -hmm. The only reason Mm -hmm. why he had to even think like that is because he gave up his trust, his faith, that nature would reveal himself. And we started to switch to try to create a method where we control and predict the future. And all this is connected up with what I was talking about before, with linear perspective because now the future is in front of us and we're trying to predict and control the future unlike the way you know the for the ancient greeks it was the past that was in front of them was in front of bec- us. because the past I had already the way manifested you talked about that in the book by the way i love yeah way yeah you, i did talk uh, about that because i learned it from moonhawk perspective mm-hmm. yeah yeah, the past was in front of us because that it had already manifested, so we had eyes to see. But, you know, some of your listeners, I'm sure, have read Carlos Castaneda and remember how yeah. he talks about... I was thinking about him as you've been talking, yeah. Yeah, I know that. Yeah. You know, So so death is yeah, stalking us from behind. And, you exactly. know, remember that? So, so that yeah. is... The future is behind <clears throat> us in that kind of conception. And actually that, that kind of... 
it kind of appeals to me more. Um, there's other ways of thinking about it too. You could think about the, you know, what Dave Abram likes to, the way he likes to think about it in very spatial sensory awareness is really that the the past is buried under the ground, you know. Um, the future mm. is beyond the horizon, you know, or, or around the corner. You know, it really, there's a lot of ways to think about this, obviously. But, you know, well, one of my favorites... I want favorites, to bring something to bear, however. At this moment, sure, sure. I want to share with you uh, yeah, some wisdom that came to me through my studies of Taiji Chuan and Taoist thinking. And, okay. uh, of course... It won't surprise you at all, Glenn, being from out east originally, that uh, <laughs> my greatest Taiji teacher was a uh, bald-headed, pot-bellied Jewish guy from Brooklyn, <laughs> and, uh, Lou uh, Kleinsmith. Oh, okay. <laughs> that wouldn't surprise you, right? Um, no. He was actually a student of Professor Cheng Man Ching, who was Chiang okay. Kai-shek's personal physician. So he oh, was wow. of a very rich, deep lineage. And in oh, fact, okay. since you once lived in uh, Woodstock, oh, yeah. Lou Kleinsmith <laughs> used to live in and teach in Socrates, right next door to Woodstock, which was our upstate school, basically. His name but sounds Lou, familiar. That's a, yeah, 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 he was a legend, a legend, and I was so blessed to know wow. him back in the 70s and study with him. And mm -hmm. he used to engage us in an exercise, Glenn, uh, mm -hmm. which was called seeing and sensing from the back. And mm. because our eyes and our physical structure is such that our eyes are what we call in front, we mm -hmm. would always realize that we, our sense of backness was mm -hmm. almost non-existent. There's nothing in our culture that really has us relate to our own back, except if we want it scratched or massaged. And, you know, <laughs> that wasn't enough. You know? So he had us do, right? He had us do exercises where we would open up the intelligence of our back, and, of course, uh, you know, kidney... The kidneys are there, bladder yeah. twenty you know, uh bladder twenty three, the opening of the gateway of non form to form in the Chinese Taoist cosmology of going from uh pre chi to chi in the body. Um and yeah. so there's an entire are you world sorry, okay, go ahead. Just kidding. There's a whole world back there that we are not cognizant of because we're always cognizant of what is up here. So I just wanted to bring that to bear yeah, in all hey, that you're sharing with us. That's, that's very good. I, I think Jason Kidd, the basketball player, probably took that class too because he was good at you know passing to people behind <laughs> him. And, you know, I ride my bicycle all over New York City, and I can only yeah. tell you that over the course of years and because of my Tai Chi practice, um, I am super sensitive to all that's going on behind me every bit as much mm. as I am what's in front. And that's, well, that's sort of beautiful. a real-world expression of this kind of wisdom in action, if you will, you know, and, uh, you know, just to share with you. In fact, I'd love to ask you now of how this idea of original thinking 
um, that you have been really so beautifully articulating through your writing as well as your teaching and the think tank, etc. How do you see this affecting our culture, influencing and shaping it for the good, just like we know ancient indigenous people of Turtle Island and elsewhere know that they are in dialogue with nature all the time. They know that they we can influence weather patterns and have been doing so for thousands of years. That Castaneda brings us the wisdom of shape-shifting, which idea has certainly entered our culture as we become more sensitized to shamanic wisdom. How mm-hmm. do you see the work you're doing in the think tank activity as helping to shape our even our body politic, our economic model, our social skills and ways of being? Wow, that's a big question. And I don't know that I know the answer to it, but I'm going well, to share with you that's just okay. my, my current state of thinking you know um and and uh um you know first of all the the steering committee that i'm working with uh, they almost don't like the word think tank so we're really a thank tank (laughs) you know yeah we we are a and because we begin from you know the origin of thinking is thanking i i put that in my book and I put book, right I, I didn't now. have to highlight it because I said remember this if you do not remember anything else from the book yes. the origin of thinking is thanking it's thinking thanking. that begins yeah. in wholeness remains in wholeness so you know oh, um boy. and that Beautiful. that really is what uh, uh we want to emphasize so really you know in a way a think tank you know where a think tank tends to identify a problem in the society and then try to create a solution um we're and it's trying also to very mental it's very head based yeah. it, it connotes head the head brain distinct from the heart brain or the gut brain for that matter so that's, I that's very right. much appreciate that's right. your point. That's right. So, yeah. in a sense, the work of the Circle for Original Thinking is we're, we're partly a meta think tank. We're a think tank about thought, about the origin of yeah. thought and how it manifests in the world. But our purpose Thinking is different thinking. than problem solving. Our purpose is in in reconnecting us and remembering and restoring our connection to the source of our consciousness and then seeing how that plays out in the society because when we don't realize that we know that our thinking creates some incoherency in the world um mm. and that's kind of where we're at now i mean I my see. my my I do see the circle for original thinking affecting the public discourse because we really need to get to the the root of things. You know, we need to. That's that's what I try to do in the book. That's what I think we can do through the circle for original thinking vehicle, and it's kind of unlimited. I don't know where it's going to go, really. But you know, the more that we look at the core um, uh, thoughts that create the situation, then we can begin to see how we can heal this incoherence and inconsistency. I mean, that's, my next book is going to be about politics, actually, um, and, and, and uh, mm. I know people may be horrified to hear that, perhaps, because people are you know, very disenchanted. <laughs> I but don't think so. You're not horrified. Good. But, but no, for me... Not at all. Okay, good. To the because actually, you know, 
our mutual friend James O.D. is delighted that I'm going to move in this direction because what I want to do is seek to dissolve the apparent dichotomy between uh, uh, different ways of thinking. So, you know, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, between liberals and conservatives, you know, so yes. so uh, that's one place to start. Um, and uh, there's just so much that can be unveiled there. But really, you know, let's take the Republican and Democratic parties, for instance. They're dance partners in much wa- in, in in ways that they don't ever realize. So, you know, 150 years ago, the the Republican party of today was more like uh, the Democratic Party yeah, of 150 today, years ago, and the, Re- was the, and the Democratic party. party was yeah. what's that? Yeah, it was the Republican Party. Yes, they were the they were the party that that was against uh uh slavery obviously Abraham slavery. Lincoln was a republican um That's right. and uh it, and 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 the Republican party continued to be the party that was more for civil rights right up until the 1960s there were more republican votes <laughs> for civil rights legislation in the 1960s than there were democratic votes a lot of people don't realize that and and it's That's only right. then that the Southern Democrats fled the party and became the base of today's Republican Party. So, you know, this kind Very of thing happens. Yeah, this kind of thing happens all the time because. Uh, because uh, um, that's very interesting. I noticed I almost slipped into a New York accent. I'm talking to you, but I don't normally have that. But but anyway, um, what's what's happening is that uh, seeming opposites, seeming polarities, are really dance partners. So we have to learn how to dance with that. We have to learn how to not make the an opposite opinion into an other or or just wrong. We need to see how that is actually unfolding in life. That's the beginning premise of, you know, and it's part of the work of the circle Beautiful. for original thinking also. I'm all for it. In fact, there has been uh there have been people who have taken up the same subject and have mm-hmm. created fora where Democrats and Republicans, I'm trying to remember who it was, one or two that I have come across in the last year that are establishing uh, different kinds of environments, contexts for Republicans and Democrats to come to the middle ground and see what it is they agree on. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. they all agree on taking money from the same sources. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> and, uh, that's no problem. But you know, ideologically, <laughs> well, you know, ideologically, there yeah. are differences. And yeah. I come from the school, since you've brought this up, of mm-hmm. non-ideological thinking, which means yeah. what works? <laughs> what works? What, what, how could everyone be served? I know that's not that sexy, but I like it. Um, well, it's it's very important. I, I believe, you know, what I would like to see in the world is conservatives who conserve things that are worth conserving, like the air, the exactly. water, the earth, the, <laughs> the elements. You bet. I said know, that I mean, all I, along. I used to say that to my father, Glenn, when I yes. first started coming of age as a young teenager, looking at the pollution in Bridgeport, Connecticut, as we drove by, and I was utterly horrified by the black soot coming out of the smokestacks. 
And right. I'm not going to tell the whole story, but uh, that is basically, I said, Dad, if the conservatives are for this, what is it they want to conserve? <laughs> I, I said, I'm a true conservative. All environmentalists right. are actually conservatives because we want to conserve nature. Please, well, that should be that, that should be that should be the you know, but it, for some reason yeah. it's got all flipped and very complex. And we're not going to unravel it here, but but there is but there is something here. It's very similar to dialogue that brings together groups that seemingly have polarized views. If you just listen for the purpose of understanding rather than yeah. to ready your reply, Be right. Um, that's why I'm for dialogue. I'm, you know, the concept of debate is a very silly concept, and in, in today's the um, uh, debate doesn't really actually help generally. Solve anything. It's, yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't tend I to solve things, and it's tremendously fraught with you know appearances. I mean, which which makes for great satire. I mean, I love Saturday Night Live coming on and. And the, and the character who's playing Hillary Clinton starts by saying, I think you're going to love the character of Hillary that we prepared for you tonight. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, it's, it's, so you're right. It's right. I find that humor, at the end of the day, even though I'm deeply involved in the healing arts, you know, professionally, I find, Glenn, that after all, and this is cross-cultural, yes. and that humor is the thing that unites. It's the power of humor that brings people together when they smile together and laugh together. A morphogenetic yes. field gets created that nothing can touch. I've developed an entire scenario for people such as Obama and Putin to come together, <laughs> listen to original, original Russian folk songs, drink a little vodka, and actually sit down, laugh together, and get down to real business, you know. Huh? Anyway. Well, you're, you're, um, I think it's great, you know. I mean, you're on to something, you know. It's, it's very important. Yes, I mean, and people do realize that yeah. sometimes, and sometimes yeah. they act on it, you know. I mean, and, That's right. and certainly we can encourage it. Exactly. We really can. Well, I feel your book helps to really advance the conversation of our seeing from a larger and higher point of view and a deeper, more rooted point of view. Um, I, I want to just quote something that has been swimming in my head since nearly since we began when you said the wonderful phrase that our thoughts come from nature. And mm -hmm. then I kind of followed by saying, yes, they're elemental. I was thinking about a very, I felt, poignant comment that uh, my dear uh, friend Terrence McKenna said huh? back in the mid-90s, when early 90s, actually, when I was uh, with him in a workshop in downtown Soho, when he was asked in the class, Terrence, what is God? And he said, mm -hmm. Biology. Hmm. Hmm. And he could have easily have said nature. Mm -hmm. It was just his way of putting it. But mm -hmm. I felt he was absolutely right on the track. Well, he's saying, you know, the study of life, you know, is, is God. Correct. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I... 
I probably would go more toward the elements, light, air, water, earth, but I, it's the same thing, really. Yeah. Um, it is. You know, Bios. Life one itself. thing I... One thing I wanted to bring up that's that that's uh that's that's moving through me these days in partnership mm-hmm. with uh 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 Rob Williams and and the Psyche people. Who, oh yes, who work, we were discussing that. Yeah. yeah, they 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 work with shifting habitual patterns of thought and behavior that limit a, a person's ability. You know, because when I first met Rob, he said, "Glenn, if you're saying that your thoughts come from nature, then it seems like nature is kind of suicidal because we're doing all these things that are kind of you know uh, corrupting nature. We're 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 polluting the water. Mm-hmm. We're polluting the air. We're pollu- and he had a really important point. So point. I think yep. what, and 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 it became the basis of an agreement of you know partnership because you know his work is about aligning um, um, people with the uh, to to receive directly um, and get their get their filters and interference patterns um, not exactly out of the way, but to become congruent, to become uh, constructive patterns. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and so you can receive the message directly. And that makes all the sense in the world. Because you know how, you know how far our world has come in the last, you know, this wasn't like this. I'm sure that a long time ago, we all were pretty directly connected with nature, with our thoughts. That's why the origin of thinking is thanking in many languages, because originally yeah. all our thoughts were prayers. They connected us with nature. But mm. uh, somewhere along the line, um, we did go astray, so much so that when somebody now can receive directly from nature, we call it a revelation. And we're ready to start yes. a religion over it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's you know, but, good. <laughs> but but yes. we all ought to be doing that. I mean, that's our birthright yes. is to is yes. to allow nature to reveal herself to us. Uh huh. You know. That's right. So, I love it. I love it. That's uh, yeah. That's beautiful. I I, I want to. You know, we're almost out of. It sounds so weird talking. Linear time units. Phrase. We're almost out of time. Well, where did it go? Um, that actually brings up. <laughs> there it goes now. Um, another really salient point you make in the book is mm-hmm. the dimension of time as us. We being time. I got to tell you, uh, with all my inner work and outer mm. study, et cetera, over the course of years, I felt that was such an interesting thing that I had not encountered quite articulated the way you did. I really, really was engaged by that. Well, well the credit, the credit goes that. to credit goes to Grandfather Leon Secretaro because he's the one who said. Yeah, and it just moved through me. He said that time is the fifth element. Yeah. Now he he didn't explain it to me, so I had you know I did come to my own interpretation. You know, uh-huh. so if if the elements are light, air, water, earth, because uh, Leon said light instead of fire generally, yeah. um, light, air, water, earth, and time is the fifth element. It seems to me that time is the animating principle of the cosmos. Time is what moves things. Time is what, like the ancients called fohat, um, and time is, mm-hmm. is 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 this is this very special animating 
force. And if it's like that, it's within us, it's within our belly, really, and it unfolds just like a spider unfolds her web. And isn't that beautiful? I mean, once you think like that, then you don't really, you know, that's really the original way we thought about time. And it's only, you know, after linear perspective was invented and clocks were invented and stuff, that we began to think of time as an abstraction apart from us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but Newton couldn't do that. Right, 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 right. And it's so interesting that these earlier scientists, at the time of the Renaissance were also, and you note, of course, in your book, they were very religious men. So mm-hmm. they were open to spirit on yes, some very important levels, and there was no disparity or polarity between being a religious man and being a scientist. I think right. it was only later that the Roman Catholic Church decided to drive a wedge between them for various economic and political reasons. That's a whole other conversation. Yeah, but yeah. It's uh, a, that's an you know, in-depth conversation, but you're right. They were indeed. united because yeah, science, remember, exactly. only means united. to know. know. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I'd yeah. like to uh, conclude with revisiting a comment you made that uh, we kind of moved right along from, but it was incredible for me mm. about mm-hmm. your experience in the story of tending the fire mm-hmm. and the revelation that you had in doing so that we mm. skipped along in order to get to the next part of the story. But mm-hmm. would you please share with us internally that epiphany uh, that connectedness that you experienced? Mm. You're talking about when the sun rose up over the uh, over betcha. the hill in the morning. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, when you said the solar plexus and that sun and that fire, I realized we're all essentially part of my my consciousness, and we can remove the word my, but let's, we can put it in kind of in quotes, you know, it's not yours, it's mine, no, 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 it's ours, no, if you would comment on that. I can comment on that and maybe even um, um, augment it a little bit, because, you know, one of the things that I learned from uh, Nancy Maryboy, a Navajo, who was part of our dialogue circle, she spoke of the word tsuyo, um, which was the Navajo word for the for the original light of our consciousness, mm-hmm. and this is really getting to what I what I came to understand as original thinking. You know, so for for a Western astronomer, we look up in the sky and we tend to say uh, that that light is coming from an ancient time that it it happened a long time ago we we sometimes paint it as a illusion it's not really now well yes. i think it's both <laughs> yes. so for the uh-huh. for the for, for you know it's not that it's untrue what the astronomers saying but at the same time it also is happening for us now in our bodies yes. so it's a way of it's why i think the stars are are associated with the ancestors uh, because they are our ancestors. And so that ancestral light from whence we came 
is what is infusing us now, you know, and it's mm. infusing us. That light is the same. That's what creates our consciousness, and it is that it is the same light of the sun coming up in our planet, and the same light of the fires that we create, and the same light in our solar plexus. And that's really a very beautiful thing to to feel and in your belly. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's a beautiful imaging and picturing of it. And it also, since you mentioned Rob Williams, and I originally learned about Rob through my dear friend, cellular biologist Bruce Lipton. Right. I'm thinking of my first interview with him, which was back in the early 90s, when Mm -hmm. it seems hard to believe, but very few people knew about Bruce Lipton, relatively speaking, whereas now right. he's an international phenomenon. <laughs> I right. love him, and his work is incredible. In fact, he'll be on in, a, in another week or two back with me. Uh, we've had him on mm-hmm. a number of times. Uh, his work in fractals, mm. in practical fractal relationships. That was the name of my first interview with him. Um, fractal mm-hmm. biology. And so what, you know, from a somewhat different but re- completely parallel point of view, your experience of yourself as, you know, the fire, the light, the sunrise, all of it in this very magnificent connectedness is, of you know, our in fractal relationship to each other. Mm-hmm. Micro, macro. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, Would you say? Well, fractals are important. It's another window, by the way, into understanding that time is not linear because time exactly. unfolds the way fractals unfold, the way that all of nature unfolds as a spiral. You know, we see those beautiful fractal spirals in nature everywhere. Um, and uh, yeah. uh, it's because that's the, the Nautilus. Way yeah, the Nautilus, the you know, I mean, the sea, the Golden pine ratio. cone, the seashell, the there's so many exactly. uh, seed head, you know, there's so many different ways, and when nature is unfolding this pattern, and that's exactly. that's something we have to pay attention to. It's it's really the it's the original beauty. It's here all over the place. <laughs> there you go. It's so true. Well, Glenn, I've got to just say it's been a complete pleasure to speak with you and listen to you and hear your stories and your your world and cosmo view, if you will. I really, thank really you. appreciate it. And just keep up the good work. Well, thank you. I appreciate the work that you are doing in the world. Thank you so much, Mitchell, and keep it Absolutely. up. Absolutely. I will do so. I'll give your website so people can visit. That would be www.originalthinking.com. Dot us. You, you could say U.S., yeah. but it doesn't have to do with politics. Just think you and me. Right. Dot us. I like Original that. thinking. Uh, dot us. Beautiful. Thank you. Beautiful. Absolutely. Blessings. Thank you again, Glenn. You're welcome. We'll talk Take another care. time. Right. Bye bye. Glenn Aparicio, what a wonderful name, Perry the author of Original Thinking, A Radical Revisioning of Time, Humanity, and Nature. Uh, He just took us on such a wonderful journey through thinking and looking at it from a a deeper point of view. I got to say, when I first heard from him, uh, he 
wrote down the name of his book, Original Thinking, and that he was very interested in that idea. And I got completely trapped by the Western perspective, despite everything I thought. Oh, well, you know, original thinking, I don't find that so interesting, an idea of an original thought. That is, from the regular Western worldview that he talked about at the beginning of this interview, distinct from the indigenous understanding of going back to the meaning of the word origin. And uh, that gives a much deeper view. And I was, I found myself afterwards feeling a little embarrassed and I had been a little glib and said, well, original thinking, I don't think there's an original thought in the world. You know, that perspective. And uh, in his uh, gentleness, he uh, kind of showed me that he was really referring to something else, altogether something else. And uh, that's just part of his uh, way of teaching, and I, I very much appreciated it. In any event, I want to just thank you all for coming and joining today at A Better World Radio. I want to remind you that you can go to our website, abetterworld.tv and or abetterworld.net, and you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter that announces the guests that we will be having on. Uh, usually we have guests, sometimes not. And we'll let you know either way. We also have a weekly television show here in Manhattan in the Big Apple every Monday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, of course. And you can watch it on television in Manhattan, community cable television, or online at that very same website, abetterworld.tv, from wherever you may be on the planet, for that matter. And uh, just tune in, and at the top it says, to watch, click here. And voila, you are in and on and participating. And we have these kinds of shows that are educational, uplifting, oftentimes inspiring, we've been told many, many times over the years, and uh, maybe even transformational. So tune in become part of the solution of our planet's issues, conflicts, and uh, themes, fulfilling our own archetypal imprint so we can uh, walk the path of contributing to the larger good, the common good. So appreciate your attention. And please also remember that we are a 501c3, a Better World Foundation, and any contribution, any, I really like to call it, investment in a better world uh, gets used so, so wisely and prudently by us to keep us on the air and expanding our media platform. So please do remember us in your thoughts, of course, and your actions. So with that said, I want to just thank you all again, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.
back to a better world. This is your 